welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Today we're kicking off a brand new series, and so I want to ask you to open up your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 11. Now as you're doing that, just think about this. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just feel things are not fair? Life is not fair. Nothing is going my way. I, I think of watching the movie many years ago, The Pursuit of Happiness, with Will Smith and his son. Can you say Will Smith yet? Is that safe? But I mean, that movie so illustrated the experience of people today where the moment it feels like you have a leg up, life just grinds you into fine dust again. It's that we're just about to succeed. I think about, I played rugby in, uh, in high school and we would have this one very, I almost want to say sadistic coach who would, who would do fitness for and we would run and run and run and run until you basically did. And then he would say, guys, just one more 400 meter left. And you run until your lungs bleed. And when you get to the end, he's like, actually, I meant one more. And just say, life is unfair. It's not fair. Now, I'm sure that you are facing, over this last season, especially since 2020, you've been facing things that are much more severe than simply running too much. But there are moments in life where we just feel, man, things are not working out. And so what options do we have? We can stuff those emotions away. We can spiritualize them away, pretend they're not there. Or I think there's another option. As we have in the past, we want to get back to the Psalms and saying, I can pray through, process through these emotions and situations in the presence of God. Not faking it, but real talk. What does it look like to pray through the Psalms? Because the Psalms are much more honest than we are willing to be. Often we want to kind of sugarcoat our lives, but the Psalmists, man, they go hard. They, they give you the highs and the lows in full HD. In, in graphic description. Sometimes it shocks us to see how honest the psalmists are willing to be in the presence of God. They can teach us something. And so what we want to do over these four weeks is say, listen, it's so important that I come into the, the habit of speaking to God about my situation. But at the same time, even more important that I start speaking to my situation about my God. And that's what the psalms can teach us. But honest question is, how do we pray the Psalms? Because have you read the Psalms in the last season? I mean, we love cherry picking one or two beautiful things from the Psalms. God is my shepherd and streams of living water and all these things. And then suddenly the Psalmist is like, God, kick them in the teeth. And where are you, God? And I'm, I'm angry. And we're like, whoa, okay, let me skip that part. And I'll get back to my Instagram posts and some of the nicer looking things. But the, the Psalms are yet to teach us that it's the full spectrum of these emotions that God is after. So three questions that I want to just leave with each of us as we pray through the Psalms. Number one, always ask yourself, what would the Psalm have meant to the original Psalmist or author? Just honestly expressing their emotions and the situation with no filters before God. God is not just permitting that, He's asking for it. 
But secondly, the Psalms obviously form part of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Covenant. And so how would someone in the Old Covenant, how would they relate these situations to God with the understanding that they had about God? God is progressively revealing Himself. And we know, third question, in the New Covenant, on the other side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, these words take on a whole new meaning. Some of them are transformed. Some of them find their true you know, fulfillment in who Jesus is. As we pray, I need to ask that question about now on the other side of the cross, how does Jesus and His good news influence what we read? So let's read together today. We're going to speak about today prayers of trust when life seems unfair. Let's read this nice and short Psalm, Psalm 11. I trust in the Lord for protection. So why do you say to me, fly like a bird to the mountains for safety? The wicked are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. They shoot from the shadows at those whose hearts are right. The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? But the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates those people who love violence. He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. For the righteous Lord loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. So at the end, there's some, some hectic language. Again, this is an old covenant understanding, not of a God who comes to, to love through us, even our enemies, even our persecutors. But that's raw emotion. So how do we understand this psalm? Now, to give you a bit of a Bible tip, I'll give you one or two as we go. It's really helpful to understand almost like a News 24 article or a, a clickbait article online. Often the very first sentence in the psalm, the first verse, gives us the theme of the whole thing. Often you get these clickbait titles online and it basically spoils the whole article. Why? Because it's trying to draw you in, pique your interest. And the psalmists often do the same thing. The first verse is the theme of the whole psalm. And he says, I trust in the Lord for protection. And then it launches, it makes this whole 180 suddenly. From that point onwards, now we're going to see what that looks like. But suddenly you go from that first part to the second part. Quotations enter, why? Because someone else is now speaking to David. If you didn't know, this is a psalm of David. He was an ancient king in, uh, in amongst the Israelites and God had a, a specific covenant with them. But he was a king and now these people, maybe friends, maybe counselors, they come to him and you see the quotation marks. They start speaking to him about something that's happened. We don't know exactly what the situation is, but we get a clue here in verse two. It says, the wicked are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. They shoot from the shadows at those whose hearts are right. Now we need to understand that David was obviously an ancient king and his reality was one of geopolitics. So maybe this was a situation, if we, if we see that vivid imagery of, of these arrows being shot from the darkness, from the shadows, what is it saying? It's speaking of assassination. Someone wants to kill David. So maybe this is in the early part of his life where you have the first king of Israel, Saul, trying to kill David as he's chasing him through the desert and, and these cave structures. Maybe it's later, Absalom, so close to David's heart, he's actually trying to kill him. So 
This is probably the reality of this monarch living thousands of years ago. And, and he had this reality of someone wants to take him out. His foundations around him are crumbling. And what are the counselors saying? They're coming to David and it's the worst possible situation. They're saying it's all falling apart. Society is falling apart. We can't even trust anybody at the moment. If we go to the army, how will we know that we can trust them? If we go to the elders, if we go you know, to the counselors, if we go to the judges, none of these people can be trusted. So Society, the foundations, it's all coming down. And so what are these counselors really saying to David? They're saying life has fallen apart. What is there to do? It's so unfair. We are paralyzed. It's often how you feel, man, the petrol price, COVID, and now suddenly, you know, stage 19 load shedding, you've got like two and a half seconds of power every day to contemplate your life, and then it's dark again. I can't even pay to get to church. It's like 17 rand just to start my car, and now it's politics, and the DA, and the EFF, and the ANC, and the Zondo Commission, and my, my family, and my parents' marriage, and my health, and it's just everything is falling apart, and I feel so paralyzed. What is even the use? What are the righteous even meant to do in this moment? I feel paralyzed by anger and fear and frustration and doubt. The foundations are coming apart. And the reason, the commentators say, the reason why they're keeping the details of the background of the psalm vague is because the psalmist wants you to not get distracted by the details of his situation, but actually see your situation in it. He wants you to read your own realities into his dynamic. And what is that dynamic? The dynamic is this. When the foundations of your life are suddenly falling apart, what does it mean? Then for the first time, you see what your foundations are. For the first time, your foundations are exposed when things get really tough. It's only when the troubles of life come. No one, when they're living this Instagram-ready life, is learning these deep lessons about their character and who they are. It's when the challenges of life come that suddenly we realize this is what I'm basing my life on. If you wanna know what really makes your heart tick, it's only when the things that do make you tick are attacked and, and, and under threat, then suddenly I realize, man, this is who I am. And that's what's happening to these counselors. Man, the very fabric of society and life and my, my personal happiness and joy and trust and hope, it's all coming apart. So what do you do with this? Man, as modern people, if this is my reality, life seems so unfair at the moment. What do I do? How can I find happiness and truth? So I went where us modern people go. If we need answers, I went to the internet, of course. Where else will you get answers? And I went onto WikiHow and I, and I found their top article in difficult times, six ways to be happy. Now, just glean the wisdom here with me. Number one, be optimistic. Just be optimistic. Number two, follow your gut. Great advice. Number three, own yourself. I have no idea what that means. Number four, make enough money to just meet your basic needs. These people are not living in South Africa in 2022. Number five, treat your body like it deserves to be happy. <laughs> And number six, smile. That's genuinely number six, just smile. So when life is tough and unfair, the internet gives us the wisdom to say, just fake it till you make it. Sing with Pharrell Williams. Clap along if you feel that happiness. It's your truth, right? So just fake it. Just put a smile on your dial and you will be better, man. 
Friends, is this the best that our modern age can do? When you are confronted with the foundations of your life breaking apart, it's stuff like trust your gut and, you know, care for your body like it deserves and smile. What is this leading us as a generation of young people toward? What usually happens is either you, you meet young people that, that absolutely believe in an almost naive way that happiness is inevitable. I am going to meet that perfect person with the washboard abs and the great salary, and I'm just going to find that dream job that pays well, you know, low hours. They're going to see just, you know, the skill set that I have and what I can add. It's life is going to be amazing. I'm going to be so happy one day. And then you meet other people who are a bit older who have not become, you know, necessarily cynical, but they're just south of that. They don't say that happiness is inevitable. They say it is unobtainable. You can never be happy. There's almost like the emotional difference between these two movies, like both musicals. Think about School of Rock. How does School of Rock end with Jack Black? Man, what a movie. The end, the credits are rolling, the kids are playing with him, they're playing ACDC. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. It smiles, everyone's happy. It's such a feel-good moment. And when you're younger, that's almost life. Life is like the ending of School of Rock. It's going to be amazing. Some people have become so jaded, so cynical about life. It's more like La La Land, right? Ryan Gosling and co, they... They set this beautiful romance up so beautifully. And then at the end, you think, Sebastian, they're going to get together. It's going to be beautiful. What happens? Spoiler alert, they don't. Ends on the cynical note. You're like, what? Is that the end? Often, we gravitate between these two things. Life is like School of Rock. Happiness is absolutely just unavoidable. And other people say, no, they're cynical. No, happiness it's unobtainable, but the Bible comes. I believe God speaks to us through Jesus, and he says, no, you know what? Happiness is possible, but it's going to come in a very different way than what you think. The foundations of your happiness will be very different from what you think. Why? Because we see here, what is it saying in verse 4 to 7? Suddenly, verse 1 says, I trust in God. And then it goes straight into the situation. Man, life is falling apart. The foundations are a mess. Life is a mess. And then it makes this strong 180, this pivot to verse 4 to 7. Because suddenly the quotations end. Whoever was speaking to David, his counselors maybe, his friends, you know, they are just scrambled. And then I, I think the Spirit just speaks through David. Because there is suddenly this perspective change. When he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. What is happening? He's saying, no, what? Truth, happiness, joy, contentment, it can be possible. But it's not going to happen the way that you think. Because his counselors are saying to him, flee, flee to the mountains, flee to the hills, you know, just flee to, go overseas, go to the Western Cape, the land of, the land of milk and honey, you know, go to this new job, go to a new house, go to a new spouse, go to a new circle of friends, get a bigger salary, get a new car, get a, get a wardrobe change, you know, get breast implants, get something, just do something, escape to the hills from your troubles, go to the mountain. But David says, no, you know what? Instead of running to the next mountain, God becomes your mountain. This is how you can trust. So how do we pray our hearts and our minds in the presence of God through the psalm? Just three really quick things. As you speak to your situation about God, 
First up, ask yourself this question as you're praying. Who is ruling the world? Who's ruling the world? Because the first thing in, in, in verse 3, you'll see it says, the foundations are being destroyed. And then in verse 4, it's like, well, not really. <laughs> not, let's be honest, not fully though. And why is that? Because David says, you know what? God is still. Yes, life is a mess. My temporary situation, I look at it, it's an absolute mess. But guess what? God is still in his holy temple. And you think like temple where? Like is there a temple I can go and visit, find God there somewhere? No, he says he is in his heavenly temple. And heavenly, not in the sense of, you know, go north and you find something like heaven. No, he speaks about a reality. God lives in a reality where, yes, even though your life is so tough, so unfair at the moment, the things you're facing are so ridiculous. But even when the foundations of society and life and health and marriage, even faith are broken apart, David says, this I know through faith. God is exactly where he's always been. On his throne, he's unmoved. When everything else is breaking apart, God is where he has been all the time. He's unmoved. He's secure. He's steadfast. You know, this dynamic, I told you a season ago that I've been reading this biography of Martin Luther. And in this moment, you actually see these contrasts in people. So Martin Luther was this leader in the Reformation. The church had become so bogged down and so intertwined with corruption and power and politics that, that Luther realized we're going to have to wrench away the original calling of the church. But you can imagine if you go up against, at that stage, some of the most powerful people in the world, it is a dangerous game. His life was always in danger. And he had this good friend. It was his right-hand man, Philip Melington. And the two of them were such contrasts, almost exactly like Psalm 11, because Luther had this, this secure knowledge that, you know, whatever happens, God is in control. Melington, brilliant man. He's like me. He was a warrior. Not a warrior, a warrior. I see the petrol price, and I see this next thing happening, and I see this bump on my finger. It's probably cancer or whatever it is. I worry about everything. So what would happen? He would break into you know, Luther's office and he would just be in a state, in a tiz, and he would say, Luther, the, 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 the authorities, they're coming. They're going to they're gonna arrest you. It's done. What's going to happen with the Reformation? What's going to happen with the church? It's all over. It's a mess. And this famous line, it's been quoted ad infinitum, but I'll, I'll just do a paraphrased version of it that's become so famous. Luther would just look at his friend, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Philip, can you just for a moment cease to rule the world? Can you just cease ruling the world for a moment? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, when I look at everything and I'm like, it's a mess. God, where are you? What am I saying? I am secure in the temple of heaven. I look at everything and I can make the judgment that God is asleep at the wheel. If there's a God, he is absolutely messing this up. But then it means that I'm either believing that there is no God, and then if that's the case, then why get bent out of shape about injustice? We're coming from nothing, going to nothing, it all means nothing. This is just chance. But if I believe there is a God, then what it's saying about me is that I think that God is so you know, powerless and, and wisdomless that he doesn't even have the power and wisdom that I have. Because I can sit in the seat of the, of the temple of heaven and I can make a better decision than this. 
can I just say, if that's the truth, man, the kind of God that we are serving, if you serve a God who is not even more powerful and more wise than you, then what kind of a God is that? What kind of a God is that? No, he says to his friend Philip Wellington, listen, just for a moment, just stop ceasing. Stop, stop and cease to rule the world. Why? Because God is still ruler. It's like being on a cruise ship. You know, you can play whatever deck games you want and get whatever drinks you want. There's so much choice. There's so much randomness. There's so much brokenness in the world. But guess what? In the end, God will take the fullness of history, of our choices, of the brokenness of the world, of sin, of the enemy. He's going to take all of those factored in and he's still going to get the ship where he wants it to go. In the end, God, with all of our sin and brokenness and hopelessness and creation is not as it should be and there's the enemy thrown in there and there's our bad choices and all of that, God is going to take all of it and he's still going to work it to his good end. The ship will get to where God wants it to be. God, even when your foundations feel that they've broken apart, God is unmoved in his holy temple. Who is ruling the world? I've read this to you before, Charles Spurgeon, so beautifully when he says, God is too good to be unkind and he's too wise to be mistaken. So when I cannot trace his hand, I trust his heart. Just cease ruling the world for a moment and trust the heart of God as you pray. When you speak to your situations about your God, let it be the God who is unmoved in his temple. Secondly, as you speak to your situations about your God in prayer, what do we do? We ask the question, how can I grow in this moment? Maybe not the question we want to ask, but this is so crucial. How can I grow in this moment? Read with me. Verse 4 says, yes, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven, but he watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates those who love violence. Yee, so that's, again, this is some of that old covenant understanding where David can honestly say, man, God, just sort out those people. Jesus comes to show us a God who suffers for his enemies, who turns our hearts even to those who hurt us. But maybe a good Bible study tip here again is often in the the Old Testament, specifically in in the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew writers will use contrast to point you to what's important. So what's the one big contrast? There's this hate, you know, there's this hate aspect to it. But the contrast with it is what? That God examines. These are the two things put down for us. God examines. He's, he's seeing. So what's happening? You know, our eldest daughter, Abby, she recently had her first ever, she's in grade four, exam time. And man, I know all the parents that have got teenagers who are like, Joe, you know nothing. You know nothing, and that's true. I know nothing, but for us as a family, a young family, our eldest is only up to three, is now grade four. It was a roller coaster of a time going through exams. Man, some mornings she would wake up crying, like, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to write. Other days she comes back so full of like passion, like, yes, I nailed it. I'm happy. So man, we were going through all the motions. And you can ask my wife, I was just a rock of emotion in our house, unmoved. That's not at all the truth. I was a mess and I was going through all of it with my daughter. So exam times can be so tough, but here's the beautiful thing. You know what? the conversations the last couple of days have been like for us. It's not about her learning the content. 
What the biggest takeaway has been for her about this exam time, the first ever one she's gone into is what? That she learned so much about herself. Yes, it was stressful times. And, you know, yes, you had to really put your foot down and work, but she learned so much about herself. Listen, God doesn't have to cause all the brokenness of life because there is so much brokenness just to go around. Between creation not being as it should be yet, God promises one day he's going, to, he's going to make all things new. But at this point, between that and the enemy, between that and just our bad choices, between that and sin, there's so much brokenness to go around. I'm listening to, to um, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Guys, I, I swear I'm, I'm in a, a depro state at times just realizing what the human condition does to itself, how humans have tortured and hated and raped and pillaged on a scale that absolutely frightens me. There is so much brokenness to go around. God doesn't even have to cause these exams, but what does he do? He will use these moments of brokenness to come and show us who we are, to come and show us as a good exam does, as a good test does, how we can grow. He's, come, he's going to come and show us who He has made us to be and what He has put inside of us. When David says, life is unfair, my foundations are destroyed, I'm going to flee to the mountain, God says, here's a mo moment where I can become your mountain. Here's a moment where I can help you examine who you are, where your foundations are, and you can shift it to me. Friends, so many times in life, things will be broken. But guess what? It's not because God hates you. It's because he loves you, that he's willing to use the brokenness of this world to even come and strengthen your character, make you more of who he has meant you to be in Christ. And you say, Joe, I hear you, but I don't see the word love anywhere in there. You're just reading it. I think it's tough and God is tough on me. Okay, one more Bible tip here. You see the word Lord, it's like the key of this verse. It's in all caps in English. And it's because basically you've got two names in the Old Testament for God. There's Adonai, which is this very general term. God is creator, he's all powerful. But then there's the personal name of God. As he reveals himself in covenant relationship, personal terms to people, he uses this word that we don't speak even. We can't translate it perfectly. So in English, they just say Lord in all caps. So this is almost like when someone calls me Mr. Strofeld or pastor. I'm like, no, please don't do that. Just call me Joe. <laughs> you hand if you need to. Why? Because let, let's let go of the formalities. I want this to be personal. This is the personal name of God. The personal name. God, the covenant holding God. God, your father. God who intimately knows you and loves you. That God will use even the broken seasons of life when your foundations feel absolutely eviscerated, he will come and use those to teach you about who he is, about who you are, about his calling in your life, where your true foundations are. I don't have to flee to the mountains because God is going to become my mountain in the season. God is going to use these moments. He doesn't have to cause them. We don't have to go and search for sin in our lives. What's the cause of this? He doesn't have to do that. There's enough brokenness to go around, but God can just use that brokenness as a mirror that he can turn to us. 
He can utilize the brokenness and turn the mirror to us and say, listen, your friends have been saying this, your spouse has been saying this, your colleagues have been saying this, but I, your father, the Lord, the personal one, the one who loves you, I'm gonna say this to you. Let's tackle that character defect. Let's tackle that issue. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of my spirit, who I am in you. What I wanna do through you, let's not allow that cancer that's in your character to remain. Let's take it out. It's in these seasons that we, that we get to do that. Let me tell you, I've, I've told stories of just my own life, just trying to be transparent about the things that I've faced, but let me show you how I've realized God had come to reveal my foundations to me. You know, at school, I loved running. I loved athletics. I was good at it. It was my claim to fame. It was a thing that I found identity in. And then I got this prognosis that, that I had these abnormalities in my ankles. And overnight, my running career was done. Never ran again. I was so angry. God, this is so unfair. At that stage, I wasn't even a Christian yet. So I would have just said life is unfair. But years later, I realized the issue was that I had my foundation. I had built my life and my purpose and my identity, who I am on performance. What I can do determines who I am. And realizing how weak of a foundation that is. You know, later I made this decision to step away from the business world and I'm going to be a pastor. And, you know, the church that eventually became Doxedale Bloom, we had put up, we had bought this massive property, put up this beautiful massive tent, you know, 2,000 seats in this permanent structure. And a year to the date after we put it up, it fell down. It got destroyed. It was this absolute freak accident. Never happened to this company before. It was crazy. I'll never forget standing on this property and seeing my dreams. I've invested myself in this, Lord, and it's gone. I felt this is unfair. Why are you doing this to us, God? I realized I shifted my identity and my purpose from sport and performance to religion. Now I'm going to do and work for God and prove myself in that way. I'm doing the same thing. I'm moving from one foundation to the next. We've got three kids, and I've told you the story that our middle child, Benny, is my only son. His name, Benjamin, means the strength, the authority of God. And a couple of years into his life, we realized through a whole medical process that he actually got diagnosed with genetic hearing loss. On Dini dysplasia and enlarged vestibular aqueducts, he's basically gonna lose his hearing progressively over his life to the point where he has almost nothing. We were devastated as parents. God, it seems so unfair, why? And I realized again, my foundation was that life would go my way. This is just basically what the, the, the internet's giving us as moderns. As long as life goes your way, you'll be happy. Guess what? Life never works like that. There will always be moments when foundations are shaken and breaking apart. God loves me enough to say, you know what? If your foundation is performance, if your foundation is your spouse, if your foundation is sexuality or business or money, then maybe we should allow those foundations to crumble. Because these are good things. These are good things, but they're not God things. Make your spouse your foundation and you will ruin that person. Make your business and success your foundation. You will break that thing apart. Make anything else your foundation. And God in his kindness at times says, you know what? Let's allow that to break apart. Because I will not just be something you flee to. I am the mountain. God, my career is breaking apart. Let me flee to the next thing. No, 
flee to me. Make your home in me. And so finally, as you speak to your situation about your God, just know this one thing, that you will see his face. You will see his face. Even more so, David says in the end, verse seven, for the righteous Lord, he loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. There's some of that old covenant again. David doesn't have the full picture of who Jesus is. So there's something of a striving, of an earning still. There's something of a Lord, I I will stay steadfast and I will, the virtuous will see your face. But it's almost as if David just sees half of the picture. He doesn't have the fullness of the revelation of Jesus. So he believes one day maybe, In this situation, I will see God's face. But this is the beautiful thing. If you're a Christian here, Jesus says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen my face, you've seen the grace and truth of the Father. And you don't have to earn it. It's not the the valiant and the, the pious. It's not the good. No. Jesus says, I don't wait for you to come and find me. I come to find you. You don't have to fix your foundations to prop yourself up for me. I come in the midst of your broken foundations to find you, heal you, restore you, redeem you. I am the good God. It's almost this picture of Jesus bringing two absolutely crazy things together. On the one hand, he says, I am God incarnate. I am God stepped into the human experience and the person of Jesus. But what does he do when he does that? He comes to suffer with us and for us. He comes to suffer with us and for us. Why can the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 12 say, you will receive as a Christian a foundation that is unshakable, a kingdom that is unshakable. Why? Because Jesus on the cross was shaken in such a way that no person has ever been shaken before. He was shaken because he took the sin of mankind upon himself. He was shaken because he took the enemy as an oppression upon himself. He took our, our failure and our identity loss and, and our, you know, our, our rip away from God. He took all of that. He was shaken to such a place that he said, God, why have you forsaken me? And he suffered for us once and for all. He came to reposition us to the place where we don't say, God, will I see your face? But in Jesus, I see the truth of God upon my life. That's why I love what, what 1 Peter 3, 18 says, that Christ suffered for sins once and for all, not that we can come to God, but that, the, that, that he would bring you to God. It says the righteous suffers for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus was shaken so that you can inherit a relationship, an identity, a purpose, a hope that is unshakable, a kingdom that is unshakable. It's almost like that story, just in closing, of of the the lumberjack. You know, he's going to cut down the tree and he sees this bird trying to make a nest and he's he's like, oh man, I don't want to do this to this bird. So he takes the blunt end of his axe and he just whacks it and this bird, you know, realizes, oh my, I, I should go and he goes to the next tree. And the lumberjack's like, oh, no, we're going to cut that down as well and wax that one again. And he moves and he moves. And after the fifth tree, it's like this bird realizes this is hopeless. So, and he goes onto this crevice in this, this, this mountain rage and on this rock, in the, in the eye of this rock, he makes his nest. Friends, just know this, that, that life is going to rock, shake, absolutely crumble your tree so often. 
But there is one who says, listen, I don't want you to flee to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and go from bottle to business to bed and, and find something that's stable. All those things will be shaken one day. No, don't flee to the mountains. Let me become your mountain, Jesus said. Let me bring you to the Father because who I am, I am still ruling. When your life falls apart, you can trust me. I'm the intimate one who comes to examine and strengthen and show you who you are and know that you don't have to earn my face. You will see my face. I will bring you and all of creation to the completion that I want because I have been shaken in your place so that you can be unshakable. We don't have to flee to a mountain. God wants to become a mountain. Take where you are today. Take the song and pray, use the words of the psalm, let it animate you. And as a Christian today, pray and pray and pray.